0: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at borough.com slash acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash acast. Fellow time travellers, how the devil are you? Uh, as always, it's great to have you along for the journey through space and time together. Today's offering certainly about a journey through space and time. To help support the making of this podcast, uh, the whole series in fact, and to get access to additional content and to get to see and hear things first, why not sign up to my patreon.com site? It's easy. Go to patreon.com, look for me by name, and offer up some of your hard-earned cash. Uh, It's cheaper if you sign up for a whole year at once, but you can pay monthly if you prefer. Makes no odds to me, I just want to have you there. Uh, So come along and join us if you can. If you wish. Okay, it's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Their father, a newspaper editor and clergyman, repeatedly told them it's given only to God and angels to fly. But with a stiff 27 mile per hour cold wind blowing, and an audience of five, the stage was set. A biplane with a 40-foot wingspan fires up its 12-horsepower petrol engine, sets off down a runway on the side of a sand dune called Kildevil Hill, and lift off, the world's first powered flight. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In last week's episode, we touched down in the year 1867 and stood with you beside one of the world's greatest writers. Where are we this week? Hi, Paul. Hi, fellow time travellers. Yes, last week we met the brilliant Russian novelist Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoyevsky. This week, our journey takes us across the Atlantic to the United States and into the 20th century. It's 1903 and we're meeting two magnificent men and their flying machine. We're at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina with Orville and Wilbur Wright. Well, Paul, I tell you what, the contrast between this one and last week, what a smorgasbord of flavours we offer up on the Love Letter to the World. Last week it was Dostoevsky and Nietzsche and Hans Holbein's The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb. Uh, And now, and now, it's the Wright Brothers. (laughs) It's amazing. You can't say we don't offer variety here. So, we're in Kitty Hawk, which is on, well, Outer Banks. It would be the part of North Carolina. They're quite evocative names, I think. You know, Kitty Hawk, Outer Banks... Kill Devil Hill. There's <laughs> a lot of a lot of evocative, a lot of evocative stuff here, and it's an extraordinary story. You can't you can't contemplate the history of the world without contemplating powered flight. You know the achievement that that is, and the, and the way that that has changed the world, making the world small in a way that had hitherto been impossible. Very quickly, offering up the possibility of journeys that had previously taken days, taking hours, and so on and so on. And also, it leads very quickly to uh, rockets and blasting off of terra firma in, in search of the stars. It all all happens within a lifetime. It's an incredible contribution to the sum of the story of the world. But before we before we get to before we get to the Wright brothers, Wilbur and Orville, let's contemplate three flights that happened in 1969. So I was two, and on the ninth of February. 1969, the first Boeing 747, the so-called jumbo jet, took off for a flight over western Washington state. And a a more iconic airliner, it's hard to imagine, than the great broad-headed, wide-bellied Boeing 747 jumbo jet. It was piloted that day by the chief test pilot for Boeing, who was Jack Waddle. And when he opened the throttles, four jet engines for enormous... Jet engines, And when he opened the throttles on them, they were delivering a combined offering of £174,000 of thrust. You know, my, uh, my dad-in-law, John Wallace, he, for, for the larger part of his career, he was a rotating machinery engineer. He trained in the pits, the coal mines. But for the larger part of his career, he worked for um, BP, British Petroleum, out in uh, Abu Dhabi. And maintaining... I mean, he did other things besides, but the uh, the guts of it was looking after jet engines (laughs) that that provided the power for moving oil and gas. They were static. You know, we're not talking about aircraft here. We're talking about engines bolted to the floor that delivered the power. So he knew all about these things. But there we go, 174,000 pounds of thrust. An extraordinary energy delivery system. So that was the 9th of February. Then on the 2nd of March, the same year, A French Air Force pilot called Andre Tourcat flew the prototype Concorde over Toulouse. And again, I mean, after the jumbo jet, talk about iconic that shape, the the Concorde, you know, that that looked for all the world like the paper airplanes that that kids make and launch, you know, across classrooms and, and all of the rest of it. So that was the 2nd of March, 1969. And then on the 1st of October, this is the third flight that year that we're interested in, Concorde went supersonic for the first time. So, so the first time she went up with Turcat, it was just a flight. But then on the 1st of October, <laughs> she really put the foot down. And it, Concorde broke, went through the sound barrier for a full nine minutes. So it was flying through the air faster than the speed of sound. So... All of that happened in 1969. I, it's, it's interesting to note that um, Britain. Uh, this is a sort of a side note that's just occurred to me, but Britain had a space program at the same time that you know um, America, Russia were you know were vying for. You know, whatever flight to the moon and so on and so on. Well, Britain had a space flight at the same time. Britain put rockets up bearing satellites right at the beginning of the space race. They were in the race at the beginning and then pulled out and diverted all of the funding to Concorde. They decided that supersonic transatlantic flight was the future rather than, you know, rather than rockets to the moon. But anyway, as I say, that's a, a bit of a non sequitur. But think about that. Those three flights, Jumbo Jet, and then Concorde, and Concorde going supersonic, faster than a bullet. And all of that in that year of 1969, which was just 65 years, less than a biblical lifetime, after Orville Wright had made the first powered flight on the 17th of December, 1903. Isn't that amazing? The galloping speed of technology, you know, to get from that very first trepidatious step into the sky to Jumbo Jets and Concord <laughs> less than a lifetime later, I find it just it excites me. What a time that was, that, that all of that was deemed possible and was pursued and was accomplished so quickly. It's, it's moving. Well... The, that first flight, it happened, as I mentioned, at a place called Kitty Hawk in a, a district of North Carolina, or, or a location called Outer Banks. And the aircraft in question was the Wright Flyer, obviously named for the Wright brothers, the Wright family. And the flight in question, you know, achieved with a, a 12 horsepower petrol engine, lasted 12 seconds and was a distance of 120 feet. That was the extent of it. And so that flight was shorter than the 195 foot, 5 inch wingspan of Jack Waddle's jumbo jet. I mean, another comparison. Imagine, in less than a lifetime, we'd gone from a flight of 120 feet to a wingspan of 195 feet for an airliner that can carry and carried hundreds of people at a time into the sky. So it was the accomplishment of the Wright brothers. Orville apparently was of the two was a was quite shy, quite a gentle contemplative soul. Wilbur was the older of the two, and he was more studious, um, uh, m- more serious, bookish. Maybe did more of the you know the intellectual work around it. Let's say, but it, it's also. F- True to say that the achievement was, was shared between the, the two of them. Orville and Wilbur had two big brothers, Ruchlin and Lauren, and they had a younger sister called Catherine that they were close to. Their childhoods were in Dayton, Ohio, and their dad was an ordained minister of the church and also the editor of a local newspaper. Their mother, Susan, had died of tuberculosis in. 1889, so they were a a motherless family for most of the time. You know that whole thing about standing on the shoulders of giants? They didn't go from a standing start. I mean, by the time Orville and Wilbur Wright got involved in pursuing the concept of powered flight, other innovators, other clever, intrepid pioneering types had been at the groundwork for the longest time. Trial and error, you know, lots of false starts and so on and so on. But by the 1890s, it's the technology of the bicycle that's the up and coming tech in the United States of America. Everybody wants a, a push bike. And so Orville and Wilbur, together with Catherine, uh, I think she was part of the business brain of the operation, they set up a workshop to maintain and sell push bikes. And they were aided and abetted in that endeavour by a a talented mechanic and machinist called Charlie Taylor. And Charlie Taylor was also, he was involved, he was infected with that desire to fly. He wanted to be a pilot, although it never happened, never happened for Charlie. But he it was, Charlie Taylor, who designed and built the engine that powered the right flyer. So he's, you know, he's another integral cog in that machine without his know-how. That flight might not have happened, or wouldn't have happened when and where it did, and it was all part of exciting effort at that time, during which the horizons of the possible were pulled closer. People were reaching out in a frenzy, almost. Technology was red hot; it was in all areas, not just flight. And I mean, make no bones about it either; it was all people could see that there was a way to make money. So a way to make money with bicycles, obviously, uh, selling, you know, maintaining and so on, fixing. But flight, anyone with half a brain, you would think, could see the potential. And you know, I mean, just to illustrate the, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the red hot, white hot <laughs> nature of the in- endeavour and the invention and the innovation going on, by the end of the 19th century, so around the same time, George Eastman had come up with the Kodak camera, which, for the first time, photography, we've we've discussed it on here in the the Love Letter to the World, but it was that Kodak camera by George Eastman that put photography into the hands of the amateur because it was affordable. The process was now accessible. You could take photographs and develop photographs without it costing an arm and a leg. Isaac Singer, note the name, had offered up an affordable sewing machine. The Singer sewing machine. I mean, I remember a Singer sewing machine in our house growing up, and I'm sure everybody of a certain age can remember singer sewing machines. You worked them with a a foot pedal, a rocker on the floor. As far as the Wright brothers were concerned, flight was the obsession. And, you know, you could imagine how people working with pedal power, chain power, having harnessed human power to, to, to move a vehicle. You could see, you can see the direction of travel, so to speak. And... There they were. By this point, they're at Kitty Hawk on the Outer Banks. And it's seabirds that they watch. It's the flight of birds that is the driver. And by a great, uh, I suppose, cognitive step, they noticed for themselves the curve of the wing of a bird when that curve was offered up to a headwind, you know, a wind that was coming towards the bird, that curvature of the, of the wing provided the magic of lift. And they could also see the way in which minutely the bird, a bird was, was altering and adjusting the nature of the shape of its wing to take account of and take advantage of all the changes in air currents that were happening around it. And the Wright brothers, they experimented with a makeshift wind tunnel. Believe it or not, they found a way to, to funnel the wind so that they could see the, the effectiveness or not of different configurations of, of wing shape. And what, what they were doing, though, although they were coming up with their own ideas, they were following in the footsteps of others, uh, notable innovators at the time who were uh, who had been ahead of them in the game. There was a a French-American called Octave Chanute, who was working with with wings, working with gliders. Uh, There was a German innovator called Otto Lilienthal, who had already earned the nickname of the flying man because of his work with gliders of his own design. There was an English inventor and pioneer of early aviation called Sir George Cayley, who was working away, making his own progress. And it also has to be acknowledged to to give a sense of how long people had been in pursuit of flight seeking to emulate the wonder of birds leonardo leonardo da vinci had noted the curvature of a bird's wings and had come up with designs of his own for helicopters and all all sorts of things judging by the sketches that he left behind in his workbooks <music> Another of the significant leaps forward, I suppose, that the Wrights made was the understanding that the pilot had to have absolute control. Moment by moment, the pilot had to be able to adjust anything and everything in relation to three dimensions. The aircraft's going forward and up and down and in every other direction possible, and it's all been governed by the air, by the movement of air currents. And they understood that the pilot, the aircraft had to be part of him effectively. He had to be able to almost wear it like a suit, had, you know, be able to manipulate it, subject to the the, 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 the moment by moment, infinitesimal and considerable changes in, in air current. The situation was evolving all the time. Uh, Lilienthal, the flying man, died, was killed in an accident in 1896. He was in one of his own gliders and it stalled. When an aircraft stalls, it goes from something that's flying to a heavy weight in the sky, and it just crashed out of the sky. But where that might have been a discouragement, on the contrary, it drove the Wright brothers to redouble their efforts. And so it was, and so it was. That or- or- Orville, Orville, it was who was nominated as the as the pilot on the day, on the day when they were ready for their first attempt at a flight. The Wright flyer had a forty foot wingspan. It was a biplane, so two wings, one above the other. You maximise the potential of lift. The wings were very light, wooden frame, stretched muslin covering them. The whole idea was like a bird is as close to weightless as you can get. If you've ever held a bird in your hand, you know, a bird is just a puff of feathers. It weighs next to nothing. And so they they emulated the weightlessness as far as they could in in the right flyer. It was powered, the right flyer, by as I mentioned, a 12 horsepower petrol engine uh, built by Charlie Taylor. And so th- there it was, there it was on the ground, a heavier than air craft uh, that would need and was supplied with an engine to get it into the sky. In terms of the kind of like devil may careness of, of their approach to the whole thing, they had understood that they needed to get the right flyer moving quickly to give it the maximum Chance at takeoff because limited power coming from the engine, really. And so they had built on it, there was a big sand dune, a huge sand dune on the coast, and it was called Kill Devil Hills, a great height. And coming down the face of it, they had constructed a runway of two by fours, you know, wooden, you know, like fence posts, a runway that they called Junction Railroad. So it's, it's deathifying, you know, they're, they're up at the top of this getting ready to, you know, come down a, like a chute and get launched into the sky. It was a biplane, as I mentioned. Orville didn't sit like like a pilot. Now he lay on his front, on the lower of the two wings. And he was in this contraption, like a cradle around his hips, that meant that by moving his body, he could modify simultaneously, he could change the shape at the curvature of the wings. And at the same time, he could control the rudder behind him, so he was able to change the wings, and he could and he could move it side to side. All of it about being sensitive to and reacting to whatever the wind was doing. There was a headwind, which was vital, twenty-seven miles per hour on the day. It was cold; it's a cold day. It's December, but again, with a view to keeping the weight down, Orville decided not to wear a coat. So he was in his shirt sleeves, shivering on the wing with excitement and uh, exposure and so they're at the top of this thing this uh, Junction Railroad and then off off he goes (laughs) they they get started and Wilbur runs alongside him for a period down the sand dune with a hand on a wingtip keeping the thing stabilised for for as, as, as well as he can for as long as he can and then it comes to the end of Junction Railway and there it is powered flight it lasts 12 seconds there or thereabouts and covers 120 feet, but there it was. A man had been in control of an engine-powered aircraft through the air. That step had been taken by the human species. And I suppose possibly echoing in their heads, certainly Orville's, if not both of their heads, was something that their minister, churchman, father had always insisted, which was, and I quote, "'It's given only to God and angels to fly.' But clearly their dad was wrong, because the right flyer flew." You'd think that such an event would have been, you know, broadcast around the world, or at least described, but it went largely unobserved. Blink and you'd miss it in every conceivable way. There, there's a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning American author called David McCullough, and he wrote a kind of biography of that first flight. And according to him, according to McCullough, there were just three men from a nearby life-saving station, a dairy farmer who had nothing better to do, and an 18-year-old boy, you know, who was curious enough to, to stop and watch. So five people watched. Well, I suppose Wilbur would be the sixth, wouldn't he? But it was just five people watching the Wright brothers' first flight. And very quickly, very quickly after that first flight, they went from strength to strength. They developed more powerful engines, and soon they were flying 20, 30, 40 miles at one go. But believe it or believe it not, even while they were doing that kind of journey, no one seemed to care. Twice the Wright brothers offered to share their fledgling, pardon the pun, technology with the US government. And the US government said no, no no, thanks. Uh, the, really, the, the significance of it all was noted, first of all, in Europe. And it, so European innovators... Pricked up their ears, and media covered what had happened at Kitty Hawk, and gradually a momentum began to build. But it, well, within a within a decade of that first flight, the Wright brothers were in the aircraft building business. Never mind push bikes; you know they were now building planes. By 1912, Britain had added a Royal Flying Corps to its military. And by the end of World War One, so by by nineteen eighteen, that Royal Flying Corps was the Royal Air Force, which has been there to this day. And some well-educated, classically educated pilots came up with the motto of the Royal Air Force, which was and is to this day Parardua Adastra Latin. It means by endeavour to the stars, which is an elegant, glamorous thought. And Nothing about powered flight would be complete without contemplating space travel. And so it was, you know, to the stars it would be. And on the on the 20th of July 1969, two men from a species that had learned powered flight just 65 years before walked on the surface of the moon. Within a lifetime, within a lifetime of that first powered flight, two members of the same species... Walked on the moon. It was quite something, and a splinter of wood, a little fragment of the Wright Flyer, was aboard Apollo 11, along with some muslin from the wing. So that went to the moon and back again. And on April the 19th, 2021, another piece of fabric from Wright Flyer, the size of a postage stamp, was aboard a little helicopter. Called Ingenuity, that was flown remotely and stayed aloft for a few moments in the atmosphere of Mars, the planet Mars. So, the Wright Flyer has been around in whole and in part. So, what can you say about the Wright Brothers' first flight? They made the world smaller like no one before them, and also they made it true that the possibilities were limitless. As the clocks turned and the new century began, the worldwide search for the liquid gold that would power the coming millennium was ramping up. Intrepid engineers prospecting in the Zagros Basin faced dangerous and difficult conditions. As costs rose and the investors' money dried up, they were told to abandon their search, but the chief engineer ignored their call, and his team struck oil. Unimaginable wealth began flowing as oil and its byproducts started to reshape the world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver site on Patreon.com. Be great to see you there. I have a new website address kept it simple for this complicated time it's neiloliver.com check out my online shop for merchandise connected to this series there's t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and all sorts my Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter my YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver channel and it features new films every week and to help build this podcast please tell your friends about it Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy financed by Catherine and Trudy, post-production by Squared Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.